0: We're going to be uh, looking at a text in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. If you'd like to turn there and follow along, or you can follow along with the same text as printed in your bulletin, Hebrews 11. Uh, We're going to have a series during Christmas uh, called, during Advent, that is, called Home for Christmas, um, which is about as catchy as I get with titles, so you're welcome. Um, Although, when I thought about it again, I thought it sounds more like a problem than a longing. Home for Christmas just sounds like quarantine <laughs> to me. Stuck at home for Christmas. But we're going to be emphasizing more the longing to be home at Christmas side of things, which is kind of the traditional uh, reflection during Advent for Christians. is uh, It's not the pre-celebration of Christmas. It's the longing for the second Advent that animates most of our thinking about the Advent season. That's why Back when the Lutherans would set us up with the colors, uh, it was purple. Advent is purple like Lent is purple. Because it's a time of uh, longing and reflection more than of celebration. The Sundays after Christmas are the are the celebration Sundays of the coming of Christ. Those are not strict rules, nor are they uh, biblical rules. But I'm a fan of rules generally, and things like this appeal to me. So uh, the idea, though, of longing for the second advent, um, is an idea of longing for home. Longing to be where we really fit. Longing to be in a place where things are the way that they're supposed to be. Uh, a longing that's never fully met in this world, even though we get tantalizingly close to it and have points of like real happiness in this life. Uh, even our points of real happiness are always uh, tinged with a sense of longing and wistfulness, because we know we're not home in this world. We'll be home in this world when Jesus finishes fixing it, but until then, we're going to be alienated in this world, uh, feeling like refugees, or at best, pilgrims in this world, never really feeling like we can have roots here. C.S. Lewis famously said, I imagine you've heard this quoted before, but he said, if I find in myself desires that nothing in this world uh, can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And this is what Christians believe, and it's what we think about during the Advent season. What does it mean to live waiting like this as pilgrims in the world? So that's what we're going to think about. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we ask that You would um, come and meet with us and speak to us and open our minds and hearts to You as we think about Your Word and as we think about what it means to be Your people in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 13, says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where are you going to be buried? Do you know? I would ask for a show of hands if I didn't resent people asking for shows of hands so much, but do you even have burial plots? More and more, the answer to that, even amongst Christians, is no. Not because they've become convinced by a belief in reincarnation that burning is the proper way to dispose of bodies. Um but because of geography. Because they think, I I don't know where I'm going to be living 10 years from now, let alone where my children and extended family are going to be living 30 years from now. And to pick a place somewhere arbitrarily to have a burial plot makes very little sense to me in my life. Right, so um, I don't think many people have burial plots. Tucson seems to me to be a place where it's even less likely that you would have a burial plot locally. Um, That could be wrong, but it's my observation that people place themselves uh, into the city and into the place here very lightly and live more to use the city than to uh, feel it as home. Some of you are long-term, multi-generational Tucsonans, and for you, I think that's that's uh, clearly different. But for most of us, uh, this is a place to be for a time, but we wouldn't expect it to be permanent. Most of the people I've met in Tucson, I think that's true of. And in as much as that's true, you'd think this should be a really good place for us spiritually, right? Because we're supposed to be the refugee people, the, the uh, people who see themselves as strangers and exiles on the earth, and people who aren't too deeply rooted in this place because we know we have a real home elsewhere. So we should be able to sing all the Christian songs about, you know, I'm a poor wayfaring stranger wandering through this world of pain and this world's not my home and on Jordan's stormy banks and all that. And we should be able to resonate easily with that uh, because we have more of a transience in our life here. Basic Christian hope, right? This isn't my home. Heaven is my home. The new creation really is my home. Um, so why don't we experience that better if we live lightly here? It seems to me that the lightness with which we place ourselves into the city and into the place uh, just creates a more individualistic uh, kind of being at home in this world uh, rather than a communal one. So I'm just going to have a wall around my house and try to make the good life and home for me and my family right behind that little wall. And I'm not going to be dependent on a lot of other people to give me that sense of home, but I'm just going to try to amenitize my life well enough so that I feel at home at least on Norton Avenue. Right? And um, so there's still a odd rootedness for Christians here, even if we're not rooted to each other, as well as we might be, say, if you lived in a small town that you'd grown up in for generations and your family's been there. So um, it's tempting, I think, for Christians... It seems like it would be more tempting to Christians who live in pleasant places to want to uh, try to make this their real home because this is a pretty delightful place, right? I mean, to get to live here is amazing. A lot of people who uh, retire and get to choose wherever in the world they would want to live, pick here, right? Because it's nice, right? It's nice enough. You could probably even have worship outside if you wanted to, but I'm not bitter. Yeah, but nice as it is and close as you are to making it awesome like if you could just change two or three circumstances in your life you could be hitting on all eight cylinders and this place could be fantastic as close as it is as nice as it is this isn't our home right? it's not our home and the Advent season is given to us to reflect on what our true home is and to loosen our roots a little bit in this place, to raise our stunted imaginations towards the better thing we have to want, the better country, the better city, whose builder is God. All right? In Advent, we think about that. That's where we're really destined for. That's the only place we'll ever really feel at home, the only time we'll ever be at home. And it raises our eyes to that true situation, orienting us toward where we're going as pilgrim people, our destination. So that's the idea that's described in Hebrews 11 when he talks about these people who, living a life of faith, uh, had very different lives on earth because of this hope that they had and this anticipation they had of a better city and a better country. They weren't trying to make everything work great here. Uh, they were seeing this life as the path of their pilgrimage. And that's what we're called to do, too. And the idea is pretty simple here, really, is first point so we're not home yet. And the second point is we will be home. Uh, So first, we're not home yet. Uh, Hebrews 11 is a famous chapter about people of faith from the Old Testament, kind of the heroes of faith. He's talked already in this passage in chapter 11 about Noah and Enoch. And then he starts into a fairly long description of Abraham and Sarah. And they're kind of the focal point of the passage we're looking at. Abraham and Sarah, who are heroes of the faith, not because their faith was that great, because if you read their story, their faith wasn't all that great, um, but they had faith in the right God, and that seems to make all of the difference. But they were the people described by this. In verse 13, uh, they were people who acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Refugees is how they understood themselves. Verse 14, they're people who are seeking a homeland, not where they were born and raised, not even where they were going, uh, in their sojourn on earth but they were seeking for the better country the better city it says in verse 15 they could have uh, gone back to the city they came from it if they were thinking of that but they desire a better country instead I don't know if you know their story they, uh, Abraham and Sarah lived in Ur of the Chaldees does that ring a lot of bells for you? it's more or less Iraq, Syria area right now and they were rich but they weren't liquid rich. They were land rich. And so to leave Ur, to leave Iraq for them, was to leave their land, which is a pretty dramatic thing to do uh, financially for them. And then to become a refugee from Iraq or Syria was probably not any less pleasant then than it is now. All right? But this is the life that they embarked on, and As a husband, I kind of wonder about the conversation that Abraham had with Sarah about it. (laughs) Hey, Sarah, um, God spoke to me. (laughs) What did Sarah say? Which one? (laughs) You know, the one, the one who made heaven and earth. Huh, he did. Okay, what did he say to you? Well, he said he's going to make me the father of a great nation, and he's going to use my family to fix the entire world. She's postmenopausal at this point. <laughs> huh? With which wife? <laughs> what is she going to say? Oh, that's very God told you that you're going to be father of a big nation, right? And they're going to bless the whole world. He's going to fix the whole worth of your family. Yeah, and also he said we have to leave. Leave, like move. Yeah, we have we have to move. Okay, well, where are we supposed to move to? Yeah, it's uh, it's more of a, like a compass situation than it is a map situation, you know, um, kind of that way. <laughs> and at some point, um, because Abraham, you know, must have been a fantastic husband otherwise, Sarah says, this is a great plan, I'm excited to be a part of it, and goes with him. And she leaves and they do this, right? If somebody said anything like that to you, wouldn't you think they were Delusional. Okay, God talked to you. That's great. I'm going to step back here a little bit. (laughs) Um, I would think they're delusional. But for Abraham and Sarah, this is the sanest thing they ever did. I'm sure no one in their family said, Wow, we're really happy for you. We've been hoping something like this would happen. Right? Um, That'll be great. You just cut all your ties with us and go off somewhere distant. Wonderful. Um, Nobody would have thought this was a good idea. Nobody would have thought they were sane, but they were. Because... They believe something that's true but not obvious. That is, this isn't our home. Our real home is the city that God is building for us. All right? So, most of us don't look at the Christian life in such stark terms, though. I mean, I don't most of the time either. I look at the Christian life as something in which God helps me to be and become a better person and make my life go better here and now. And that that's the point of the Christian faith is, you know, he's going to help me to straighten up somewhat and uh, fix some things that are wrong with me and then be on my side to help things go better for me in my life. And that's what the Christian life is. It's a very unbiblical notion, but it's a real sensible notion. It makes it seems like that's the way it is or ought to be. Um, but this is why uh, Christians struggle so much with whining. Um, because we have expectations that this world's supposed to work out for us really well. Things are supposed to ultimately go well. If I suffer, it's just going to be pretty temporary and probably not that bad um, because God's on my side, right? He's I'm His child. He's going to make things go well for me. Right? My life is going to be good here. God is going to make my home here great. And that's what I expect. And so I don't understand how suffering could not just, not just be tangential to my life as a Christian, but could be central to my life as a Christian. That like Jesus, I'm supposed to learn obedience through suffering. That doesn't compute. That seems sort of un-American to me to think of the Christian faith that way. But it's why, in part, that we're never able to be content in our circumstances. Because we keep expecting to be in the new Jerusalem here. And we're not there yet. We're not there yet. It's also why we tend to uh, struggle, like Christians in a lot of places do, with nationalism, uh, where we become you know, overly attached to our particular place and nation. And, you know, the Christian faith totally relativizes your connection to your nation, because now you have a, a prior citizenship, a more important citizenship your real citizenship, which is in a different country with a loyalty to a different king, and the allegiance you pledge is to a different king than the one the people around you pledge allegiance to. I'm not making a comment about the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm just saying allegiance is something that we fundamentally give to our king and cannot fundamentally give to earthly kings. But that's a hard thing for Christians if they especially live and as uh, pleasant the political circumstances we live in it's a you know, a trick to liven up parties that i do is i try to ask people is there anybody you would trade with politically uh, in the world today or in history as far as a political situation under which to live is there anyone with whom you would trade and I almost never get an answer of yes most everybody i know says i think all in all as far as i know uh, I wouldn't trade with anybody with what I've got. And we're not happy with our situation politically, even though it's the best one we've ever heard of in the world anywhere. The, but the Christian idea is, yeah, we're ready to trade today for our real country. That at best, we we insert ourselves into a country like a missionary kid, you know, a third world, cult, a third culture kid. I don't know if you're familiar with that idea, but... These children who are born to American missionaries overseas uh, who are American, but they've been raised in a different culture. So they don't really feel at home in the culture in which they're raised because they're not from there. But when they come home on furlough, they don't feel comfortable in America because they weren't raised here. Say a third culture kid only feels comfortable on the plane. And that's a pretty good analogy for how Christians should feel in the world, right? We don't feel at home here because this isn't home. And that should affect our nationalism temptations as well. Perfectionism, which I know has a lot of different roots, but part of it comes from this. Is that we, we become perfectionists because we think perfection is possible in this life. Control of our circumstances so that everything is okay and everything works right. If you're hosting Christmas and preparing for that with all of the decorations and food and things, you understand perfectionism, how everything has to be just Right? And life doesn't work that way here because we're not home here. And so our expectations should be different from that and perfectionism should be less tempting for us if we really believe that this isn't our true home. So it's funny to live where we live in a place that's so pleasant for us. We have religious freedom like nobody's ever experienced. Uh, we're rich like nobody's ever experienced. It's as good as set of situations circumstantially as you can imagine and yet our souls suffer here it's not a good place for our souls and um, stopping in Advent to reflect on where our true home is is something of an antidote for that Uh, to say my soul is unable to find rest here because my soul doesn't belong here until here is fixed so we're not home yet but we will be home Right, we long for, as it says in verse 16, a better country, the city that God has prepared for us. That doesn't mean, again, I've, I've said it a few times, but that doesn't mean a disembodied life in the clouds. You know, um, Christians, when they die, their souls go to be with the Lord. Our bodies rest in the grave until the resurrection. Our bodies are still us. Uh, they will be resurrected. They will be recognizable like Jesus' resurrection body was. The intermediate state where our souls and bodies are apart from each other is abnormal and temporary. Our true home is not disembodied heaven. Our true home is the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the home that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. Right, that's our home. the The life in the clouds forever idea uh, is oddly unappealing. I think you remember the Far Side cartoon where I was sitting on the cloud and had. A halo around him and looked around and he says, I wish I'd brought a magazine. <laughs> but that's not the Christian hope is disembodied uh, heaven by and by. The Christian hope is the new earth uh, that Jesus will recreate unalienated from God, where we're in right relationship to God, where our bodies work and our psyches work and the environment is not hostile to us and our relationships work. And, you know, the, it's the Christian hope, the new Jerusalem that we're told to expect the city that comes down from heaven. This is the promise Abraham got that he had to believe. Uh, Through you, I'm going to fix the whole world. Through your descendant, I'm going to bless all of the nations on earth. And so they just saw the very beginnings of this. It was a thousand years after this that that David showed up on the scene as the king, the uh, great David. He was sort of the epitome of kings in Israel, such as he was. Um, And... He was called the Lord's anointed, which is the word we use for Messiah. That's the same word. But he obviously wasn't the Messiah, the ultimate one who would fix the world. He was a forerunner to him. But the city of Jerusalem is called the city of David, right? And we sing about that in a lot of our Christmas songs, the city of David. But when great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, was born, uh, there was no place for him in Israel. There was no place for him in Jerusalem because it wasn't home yet. Even Jerusalem itself wasn't home yet. So Jesus said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And if it weren't true, I would have told you. That was our gospel reading. But Jerusalem is still the point of our longing. You know, the Psalm 137 that Jason read for us that talks about how can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? You know, if I forget Jerusalem and don't make it my highest joy, you know, woe be unto me. That doesn't mean the nation of Israel that exists politically today. That means real Jerusalem, right? Our real home, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. That we are in the foreign land singing the Lord's songs here with that same angst and that same longing and that same discontent that the Israelites felt when they were in exile in Babylon. we long for our true home, the new Jerusalem. So, what does that do for us now? If this isn't our home, uh, we're longing for another place, we're pilgrims passing through this place and this life. Does that mean that we should despise the place in which we live? Just separate ourselves and say, look, you know, y'all deserve what's coming to you. I don't really care. I'm not that interested. I'm a citizen of another place. I'm not worried about it. And that's, Actually, not what we're called to do, right? We're not called to any kind of an escapism, even though this isn't our home. We're supposed to be thankful for the people here. When we live in a beautiful place like this and people comment on it and don't thank God for it, we're here to thank God for it, right? To give God the credit for what He's made here. To appreciate the beauty of His good creation here. To appreciate what's beautiful in the city and the way that people live together here. We're to be the champions of that. We're to be the noticers. Of that to shine a light on those things, we're to be the custodians of a vision for what a Tucson can be and will be under the influence of Jesus's mission of redemption. Right, what will this place look like in the new creation? And we're to be the custodians and advocates for that vision. Place matters to us. It's weird for a group of people that talk about the earth is not my home. Places matter. So, investing, caring about what happens in our public life here is important for Christians. Um, You know that Jesus, after his resurrection, was uh, named by the angel at the tomb Jesus of Nazareth. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. After his resurrection. Now, you're looking for Jesus of heaven. His place, which was a no place, the only good thing to ever come out of Nazareth was Jesus. right? But he still takes the name of the place. So in the new creation, we're going to be David of Tucson. Um, Very likely. Dana of Tucson. Maybe. Because we're supposed to love our place and we're connected to it, we just don't think that it's fixed yet, and it's not home yet. And because of that, we look at our place and our life here not as a place to be amenitized so that our lives can be pleasant and nice, but we look at our place as a posting from our king on his mission, that this is where he's put us to do his bidding, in the jobs that he's called us to do, in the families that he gives us, in the neighborhoods and relationships that we have, uh, in the needs that he makes us aware of. He's put us here as posted missionaries in the world, as we are pilgrims in the world. And so we're supposed to look at the world with the question in our minds, what is it that the king has put me here for? What does he want from me here? Uh, Where is he giving me leverage? Uh, to put his kingdom on display here. Not, how can I insulate myself in such a way that my life is as pleasant as I can make my life? It affects the way you think about kids if you're gonna raise kids. Am I trying to raise kids who will uh, know all the cheat codes to get through life so that they can be rich and comfortable and avoid some of the, uh, the big pitfalls that seem to mess up people's lives? Is that the goal we have with our children? It's not the goal we have with our children is that they would learn to be on pilgrimage, that they would live lives that are missional. They would say, "I'm I'm here on the king's errand, and I'm going to be home, and it's going to be sweet, but I'm not home yet." And so, if our kids need to leave Ur of the Chaldees to go in a compass direction or something, we don't say, "Oh no, 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 dear, don't do that. You might be unhappy." We say, "All right, what do you need? We're we're going to pray for you. What What do you need to go?" We send them. Safety is not not a very big goal for Christians with their kids. Mission is a big goal for Christians with their kids because this isn't our home. And in the city, we don't just try to use the city to benefit ourselves as best we can, but we're here to serve the city. Like Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, he sends us to Tucson in the same way, to be hospitable in a place where people's social connections are very loose, uh, to love people that aren't easily lovable a lot of times, like I'm watching you do very often, to move out towards broken people. Um, I'm very curious and eager for you to work with me to think about what our niche is going to be in Tucson, uh, pushing back against the brokenness. Is it going to be hospitality to international students or toward refugees? Is it going to be something uh, with... Uh, the homeless population here, it's going to be something with criminal justice reform. Where, where are we going to have leverage in this place? Um, because having a church that we all happen to like to amenitize our lives is not why we are called here. Right? We're called here to be on Jesus' errand in this place. So, um, an example that I think is fantastic of somebody who understood that this life is not home is uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. I know many of you are familiar with her story. She's a, she was uh, paralyzed as a teenager in a diving accident and has been a quadriplegic ever since and has lived an exceptionally long time for someone who's quadriplegic, suffering the whole time badly. As soon as she was able to be moved and transported um, after her accident, she asked fairly regularly to be taken to the riding stables where she used to ride horses. And the people caring for her were very perplexed by this and said, why do you want to go there? It's just tantalizing and taunting that you can never ride again. And her answer was, even as a very young woman, this, this is some Christian, her answer to their question was, I don't want to forget how. I don't want to forget how to ride. And this is not a prosperity gospel person saying, I just have so much faith that I'm going to walk again, and I'm just so sure that I'm going to walk again. She wasn't saying that at all. She's never said anything like that. What she's saying is, this isn't my home, but my home is coming. Um, I'm waiting for a better country, and I'm going to ride in that country. I'm going to ride in that country. I've got desires in me that nothing in this world can satisfy. And so the logical conclusion is that I was maker of a different world. Not home yet, but I will be. Now let's pray.